Welcome to the Intelligent Investing Podcast, where modern portfolio theory can suck it. A student of the school of Graham and Doddsville and a clergy member of the Church of Warren Buffett, here's your host, Eric Schlein. All right. So who would like to uh, ask a question? Um, what, what in the portfolio are you most excited from a risk reward standpoint? Uh, I know sizing determines sort of what, uh, you're most excited by from a stability standpoint, but I'm curious, risk reward, uh, um, what, what's like the most interesting. So I am going to say there's a few things in the portfolio like that. One of them is especially thinly traded and I'd like to buy more. So I'm going to, I'm going to defer that, that answer. Um, but there, there's a there's a few things in the portfolio where here I'll I'll, I'll share one that that that's liquid enough. So the uh, you know Liberator Syndication, for instance, the podcasting company, you know there's that's a very interesting situation. So you know I was buying it. You know we started buying it around a dollar a share. We bought it all the way up to. I mean I actually bought more today for my personal account at around four dollars a share. And it's a situation where you're you know, podcasting is this tremendous growth industry. It's going to be significantly bigger than radio, I think, at some point. And it's the only really pure play, podcast play, uh, that's publicly traded. And when you strip out the cash, when you look at an enterprise value, Shaz, you're able to buy this company at, you know, depending on the price, high single digits to low double digits. And here's a company, you know, they're looking for a new CEO right now. I think, and, and sorry, that's that's low double digits. What like a PE ratio or, or are you no, no 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 free free cash flow yield? Okay okay great. Yeah, so you know they're overcapitalized right now. It, it's a really weird situation. So they're in this lawsuit right now. Um, there's this. So basically, they were spun out from a fraudulent company called Fab Universal, and that went to zero. But Lipson's a real company, and the um, the guy who was running Lipson, his name is Chris Spencer. The guy's a criminal. And probably shouldn't say that, but in all intents and purposes, I will consider him a criminal. And, you know, he, there was an activist involved. They kicked him out. Uh, they got him to get rid of some of his options. And there's this Chinese investor that's like still involved and he's in jail right now. So what they're trying to do is make his shares invalid by basically saying that this, you know, this was a fraudulent company and that this spin out and you owning a big stake in liberated syndication is actually fraudulent. You need to give all your shares back. Well, it's, I don't remember the exact percentage, but it's, it's a big enough stake of shares that if, if they win the case, which I'd say 50-50, you're talking a few dollars per share of, of value right there. This is a $4 stock. Also, on top of that, you have an activist involved who owns about a little under 10% of the company, Eric Shahinian at Kamek Partners. Uh, I've known him since college. He's a brilliant investor. And, you know, he is now on the compensation committee. Uh, he's going to help allocate that capital more appropriately, uh, lower, lower expenses. So I think the, the company right now is still, it's overcapitalized. I think the expenses are temporarily high. And with a with new CEO, which should be any month now, I don't know when, it doesn't take a lot to, to see the stock price be, be, you know, be a lot higher than it is today. So that's probably what I'm one of them that I'm most excited about. But, but, but the business itself is growing fine X, the expenses like the oh, growth yeah. for I mean, cash flow. Yeah. I mean, this is Shaw's. This is what's amazing. If Chris Spencer was this member, I, I bought the stock when Chris Spencer was still running the business. There was no guarantee he'd get kicked out. I, I, right. I, I thought that was 50 50. 
So what I was thinking was if Chris Spencer just runs the business indefinitely, is it still cheap? And the answer was yes. I was still buying a company growing at double digits with the CEO taking half the income from shareholders with him and the CFO. Uh, and you still, and you're still buying a growth company at like, you know, at that point it was like seven times free cash flow. So in a bad scenario, I think you do okay. In a best case scenario, you know, I, I, I think you do unbelievable. And then there's, you know, a million scenarios in between. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and what about Facebook? What's the, what's the thought process there? Are you betting on sort of the monetization of what's that? Like, no, it's just, no. just too cheap, right? I mean, relative that's to the market. So that's an example where I'm just betting that the company exists in 10 years. Yeah, that, that's fair. Uh, regulatory overhang. I guess you can look past it as long as the business keeps growing, which it should. I mean, oh, look, Facebook welcomes it. Look, the, the more regulatory things around Facebook, the harder it is to compete with Facebook. You know, this is why Walmart always wants a minimum wage. It, it hurts. It helps them. It hurts their competitors. If you think Facebook's going to be around in 10 years and you're buying it almost at a, an enterprise value to net income of, you know, roughly the market, and it's going to grow significantly faster than the market. I, I, I think there's a lot of ways to win on Facebook. And, you know, to speak what you're saying, there's sure there's all these ways they can monetize WhatsApp. I'm not smart enough to figure any of that out. Um, that's like, you know, way above my pay grade, but I don't have to figure that out because if those happen, those are just free lottery tickets. If it doesn't happen, you still do okay. So I, I'm putting my faith in, in uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, who's, you know, actually an incredible capital allocator. People don't realize that to grow the business. And there's, there's, there's a lot of ways to win. Look, if Oculus becomes a major business that, you know, in 10 years, that could be as large as, as Facebook today. So there's a lot of unknowns, but this speaks again to, you know, low risk, high uncertainty. I, I have no idea the future of Facebook, very, very uncertain. I would say though, you're not paying a lot uh, to take on, on, on that uncertain future. I agree with that. Seems like a lot of these high quality compounders have been uh, beaten down recent <laughs> recent days. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Sean. Does anyone else have a question? Hey, Eric, I have a question for you. I think it's important to invest with conviction. Um, but if it was cheap at 100, it's certainly cheaper at 50. So how do you size your investments and when do you know when to trim? Good question. So there, there's a few ways I look at it. If, if it's a company, Facebook, like, a, you know, say a quality business, I have no problem, you know, having that be a very concentrated position. And, you know, I've, I've had positions uh, between, you know, 10% is not uncommon. And I've gone all the way up to, you know, 30, 40% on a position before. Generally, though, most things I find are not going to be great companies trading it insanely cheap. Generally, if I find, say, a decent company at a, at, a, at a good price, you know, maybe I'll make that three to five, maybe 10%. And then if it's sort of a super, super cheap stock, but it's, you know, like Carl, if you look at your portfolio, it's mostly in total crap and garbage. Probably what you want to say to your investors, right? But if you look at the garbage, Carl, that you own, I'm paying pennies on the dollar for the garbage. You know, you see these like, you know, say these funky Japanese stocks, you know, we own a sort of a basket of some Japanese companies. I don't have really any view on these. I can't even pronounce half the companies. Um, and the Japanese culture is kind of interesting where, and you see this actually in South Korea as well, where there's, there's, it's very much an honor culture. So it's, it's, it's not about necessarily making money for shareholders, but it's in the pride of, of the assets they own. So you see you know, there's a, there's a joke in, in, in the investment industry that you have a Japanese company and they sell a widget, but then they also have an insurance business and own a bunch of land that's been in the family for 700 years. So you might have a decent asset, 
but then you have, you know, 90% of the book value in like farmland that doesn't do anything, but it's a 900 year old company. And all of a sudden the returns on equity go from like 8% to like a half a percent. So most of these, a lot of these Japanese firms should trade really cheaply. But the thing is, I would never put 20% of my money into one of those businesses. I might put 1%, 2%, a half a percent. You buy a basket and then all that happens to happen is, you know, most of them are not going to go to zero because they're very well capitalized. And I'm looking at a few other things. I'm trying to avoid them having Chinese operations. You know, if they're selling stock, I, I avoid that. So there's, there's a few, th- I look to see like to avoid certain things to make sure I'm not getting a scam. But if I, if, it, if I have a bunch of these crappy stocks that sort of pass the filter, then the question is, okay, if I buy a basket, most of them are just going to do nothing. But then you have like two or three that are up, be up like three or 400%. So, you know, what you don't see in the portfolio is, you know, I've sold a bunch of those this year, doubled overnight on no news. It, the, the company went from really, really bad to just like really bad and stock doubles. So it's kind of hard to lose, but if things just get less bad, you can win. It's kind of strange. So that, does that answer your question, Carl, on how I look at position sizing? But you asked about trimming too. Yeah, I, I think in, in the heart of my question is, um, it, if you continue to sort of double down, you can have a position or conversely, if a position, you know, grows such that it becomes such a large percentage of the portfolio, how do you manage that? And do you look at it, you know, do you look at it and go, I never want to have a position. Do you have rules that say like, I don't want this position to ever be more than 5% or something like this? Yeah. I mean, look, if I have some garbage company and it's like, it it gone up a bunch and it's now like a 15% position, I would, I would trim that to like a 2% position again. Mm-hmm. But something radically has changed because I, I, I ridiculous selling a crappy Japanese firm to take up fifty percent of the capital. Um, but I'm also looking to see. I'm also looking to see what else is available in my universe. You know, I, I have sixty thousand securities to choose from. <laughs> so, if something goes up a lot, there's a, a good chance that there's another just crappy company that that hasn't yet. So those will actually rotate out quite quite frequently. Um, and then you know, if you look at like arbitrage situations, I'm not going to put more than you know, one or 2% towards, towards that, you know, I've actually hurt you guys by doing that. I, I could have made more money for you all uh, if I bet bigger. But the problem is, you know, as good as my batting average is, you strike out on one or two of those, you could lose a lot of money. So I, I keep it small. So far, it looks like I've been too conservative, but I promise you at some point I'm going to screw up. And then you're going to all be very happy that I, I screwed up on a, on a small position, not a 10, 15% position. And then, you know, to, to speak to your point on trimming a position, you know, just if something gets too expensive and there's just some better situation, maybe I still think it's cheap-ish, but there's something else that I want to make a 2% position and I'm raising some cash. So it really depends on the situation. But, you know, Carl, this is, this is the art form to portfolio management. There was, you know, there was the rule book with the three steps to, to do it, then, you know, every uh, accountant would be a billionaire. No, no, and that, that's the answer I was hoping for. It's, it's, I think it's, it's a, uh, the blend of uh, the art, but also having rules and disciplines. And well, I'm glad yeah. you were hoping for because people that were hoping for uh, the rules based answer would probably uh, not be here. So I'm glad we're aligned. Hold on. All right. Uh, Bob, then my dad, and then, and then Matt. So uh, hi. So uh, we're chatting over the email. Can you, can you give some insight into your round trip choice with uh, AMC? Yeah, so so for those uh, why did you choose to enter and why did you choose to enter in October? Yeah, so so AMC is a company. Um, I bought it around 23-ish. I sold it at around 23-ish, a tiny little loss. And then it went up, what is it now, like at 75 or something ridiculous? 
Yeah, it went up a lot. Yeah. Know, I sold it. Yeah, 75. Yeah, my market timing skills are quite atrocious. Um, so <laughs> this is a really boring answer, but it's the answer. It had nothing to do with the business. It was an arbitrage situation uh, where they had a tender offer and it was uh, one of these Dutch tenders. So basically there was a range of where they would buy the stock and you didn't know until they did it. So it depended on how... The more demand uh, for the tender, the, the lower the price. So it was one of these tender offers where a lot of people want to tender their shares. So I got a lower price than I was expecting, but I still didn't really, you know, the loss, if you look at your 1099, um, the loss would be very, very minimal. But it was a situation where I could have, better case situation, there was the possibility to make five or 6% in like two weeks. So it was, it was a bet I would continue to take. And, you know, even if you're wrong, three out of four times, you still do pretty well. So you're not following the, uh, the Reddit boards and bet on the, no, the I, sentiment? I, I spent absolutely zero brain power uh, on that. <laughs> All right. Okay. Thanks. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, so I couldn't resist asking you, are there any plays coming out of the pandemic based on that? Based on coming out of the pandemic? So it's like an anti-Amazon, anti, you know, pro movie theater uh, play or what? So the problem with that is that everyone knows we're coming out of the pandemic. And if you do things based off what everyone knows, I don't think I have any edge there. So I avoid games where I don't have an edge. Thank you. What's your question? So I've been worried about inflation for a long time with very low confidence interval as to when that might hit, although a very high confidence interval that it will eventually hit over a long enough time horizon. Um, all of the um, COVID support and money printing that's been going on in the last year. And of course, the new bill was just passed over the last weekend. Can you give just a brief sort of meta perspective of how you how you view that threat? And then specifically with the portfolios that you've done for us, how you feel is positioned for that? Or, or do you even think about it at all? I, I think about it for fun. But I'm, I'm going to share the screen for a second and go back to the uh, portfolio. You all see this? So I go, can you all see this if I'm not zoomed in? You know, this, so Matt, this is not going to be exactly your portfolio because this is everyone's portfolios combined. Uh, so yours is, everyone's going to look slightly different. You know, if you look at in general, so, you know, let's just take a step back. If you look in general, when there's been inflationary periods and we've had, we've had about four of them, you know, peak to trough and you look at certain industries. So like, for instance, like the, the energy industry, which you don't really see much represented here, has outperformed by, you know, maybe like 37%, something like that over those four periods. But, you know, there was an article in 2016, I don't remember who wrote it, but I remember in 2016, I read an article about the upcoming inflation threat. And you could read articles about the upcoming inflation threat in the last 10 years. I've been worried about inflation for the last decade, at least, and has not come to uh, fruition. So what we do know is there's money printing and there's going to be more money that gets printing. And what we do know is that, you know, the fiat dollar over time will depreciate. That's, that's how fiat currencies work. They, they depreciate. And I'm not going to get into the whole mechanics of how money works, but generally I don't put too much thought about that in terms of my investment decisions, um, which might sound a little strange, but, you know, I look at guys like Buffett and Munger who are two of the greatest of all time. And they don't even know how to predict that stuff. And they don't really make investments based off that. So for instance, uh, you know, if we look at the holdings, say we look at, um, you know, Brookfield Asset Management, right? Where they own a lot of real estate. Well, real estate, uh, if, you, if you look at real estate charts, they do, it, does, it actually does 
quite okay in an inflationary environment, right? So Brookfield's a company very well capitalized out in Canada, uh, but they're a global firm now. And if there was an inflationary scenario, you know, you would have them locked into, um, you know, long-term low single digits. So that becomes worth something in an inflationary environment, the fact that they've locked in uh, low interest rates. Um, but then also rents seem to hold up and, 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 and tend to increase in an inflationary environment too. So, you know, if you look at say apartments and self-storage and single family homes, those asset classes tend to do okay in an inflationary environment. So if you have a business where there's hard assets and they're backed by really long-term cheap debt, keyword long-term, you'll do, you'll do okay. I mean, look, inflation isn't good for an economy, so everyone struggles a little bit. But in terms of an inflation hedge, if you will, um, the best inflation hedge over time has not been gold, uh, has not been any you know, currency hedge. It's that the best hedge has actually been owning quality businesses with pricing power or owning hard assets backed by cheap debt. And if you look at the portfolio, we own a lot of businesses with pricing power and we own a lot of uh, hard, you know, Laco, for instance, is mostly in self-storage assets. Well, self-storage is quite okay um, in an inflationary environment. All that's going to, you know, with Laco, for instance, you know, the Hathaway family is very conservative and very well capitalized, long-term uh, debt. In an inflationary scenario, self-storage cap rates are going to go up, right? So cap rate would be basically like a price to earnings ratio of, of real estate. And as cap rates go up, and you have this you know, low interest debt, you have this ability now to go use the rental, you know, rental, you know, uh, rent income you're getting from self-storage, which is holding up, and then you can reinvest that at cheaper real estate, where if you were a company, say, that was in a lot of debt, had, a, you know, say, a, a five-year mortgage, you know, those companies get screwed. Um, the company, also companies that get screwed are you know, very asset-heavy businesses that are very commodity-like, a lot of short-term loans, um, and don't have any pricing power, you know. So I don't want to be. I don't know. I don't necessarily want to own an airplane, an airliner, in an inflationary environment, or I don't necessarily want to own, um, you know, someone who's selling a widget where my cost, the newspaper industry, will get destroyed. I mean, it's already being destroyed, but it'll even get more destroyed in an inflationary environment because the raw material costs are going to go up significantly faster than you know demand for newspaper. So they don't have pricing power. So. There's, there's businesses like that get hurt, but if you're owning quality businesses with pricing power, or you can own cheap assets funded by you know, long-term cheap debt, I think you'll, you'll do okay. So long story short, I don't really think about it. Matt, do you have any follow-up to that or does that, does that answer it for you? No, that's that's good perspective. Um, and that's sort of about what I would expect both from conversations with you and... And Eric, if I could ask you a question. Yes, yeah. How are you going, Eric? So, um, you mentioned um, a lot about, let's say, Japanese stocks and a cheap basket of stocks that, um, you know, overnight they can double if, if things go right. So, I'm just wondering, if, would your style be more, I mean, for bring Ben Graham's style, or would it be more of a long-term compounding style? Um, and then with that, with the turnover in the portfolio, with the Ben Graham style, and with the taxes uh, and, you know, fees and, uh, and costs like that, let's say, with, with the turnover, with the Ben Graham style, which in the long term is uh, more your preferable style of investing yeah, so compounding I, or England. Yeah. So one of the advantages of being a boutique firm is I have multiple levers to pick from. So I I'm, I'm very agnostic. I don't, I don't have, you know, I'm not going to just buy Ben Graham stuff. I'm not going to just buy compounders at, you know, at a good price. 
I'm just interested to see what the opportunity sets are. So if you would ask me uh, in March and April, I would have said, buy high growth companies trading like they're going bankrupt. I was, I was not buying any you know, net nets during that time. Not because there weren't opportunities, there were, but if I can buy, say, Aircap, you know, like three times earnings, or I can go buy Gannett two times revenue, um, that's a much, that's a lot easier um, and preferred from a tax advantage, you know, standpoint than you know buying something at you know forty cents on the dollar to sell at seventy cents on the dollar, let, let's say. But in times like this, you know, where where a lot of those assets have, have come back in price and I've trimmed some of that, you know, I've purchased a few more you know, cheaper securities. But then again, you know, I, I was buying some more liberated syndication today for, for my own personal account, um, which is not a net net. It's, that's a compounder at, at a good price. So I'm just interested to see, you know, look, in my preferred scenario, I want a company that is going to compound at, you know, 25% a year for the next 20 years. And I can hold it and defer taxes and pay, you know, nine times free cash flow for that. That is the that is the sweet spot. That is easy. That is that is getting pitches right over right over home plate in the middle, and I, I don't have to do anything. That's not very common to find. So when I find it, I'll I'll load up on that. But then you know just, just to kind of keep me busy, I'll put on my thumbs and buy these cheap stocks, and you know just to do something, and and, and I do okay with that too. So um, I, it it really depends on on the opportunity set, but I, I like to do both, and and we have an advantage where we can do both. Who else has a question? Any hardballs? Why don't you take more short positions, Eric? Why don't I take more short positions? Yeah, I mean, if, if, there's, if the, you have conviction on the side that there's, this is underpriced, you must have conviction that there's something that's overpriced. I, I do. And the market can um, stay irrational longer than I can stay solvent. See, if I own something for a few years and the stock price keeps going down, I'm, I'm not going to have to put up more capital. So I, I, can, I can afford for something not to happen for a long time and, and, and have patience. The problem is, look, if I was shorting GameStop, right? Like, you know, I, my, my intrinsic value calculation on GameStop was, see, now I'm talking about GameStop. Everyone wants to hear me now. Uh, but I'm talking about GameStop and, you know, I think maybe it's worth $10, $15 a share, depending on the situation. Trades at over a hundred today. Now, the problem is, I think GameStop is overpriced right now, which I do. It can go from 100 to 900 before it goes to 30. And if it goes to 900 before it goes to 30, I get wiped out. So investing is, you know, there, there's, there's two kinds of games in life. There's infinite games and finite games. And investing is an infinite game. The, the, the more you can stay in the game, you don't even have to do that well. You can just do average. But if you can stay in the game for 50 years, and I'm, I'm a lifetime player in this. So if I can just stay in the game and not get wiped out, even if I do 8% a year for the next 50 years, just by staying in the, the game, we're going to do okay. So one of the de most deceptive things is we all try to compare it to the index. The problem is that most people don't even do the index. You know, the average index fund investor only makes about 20% of the returns that the index returns. And the reason for that is, well, people tend to buy when things are overpriced and sell when there's panic. Um, they don't stay in the game. And you look at, you know, unfortunately, some very smart people in the investment world who run these long short funds, and some of them had to close up shop the last few years. And that's a shame. But I think that often these long short funds were less about 
making returns as it was to it's a marketing thing. Look, the truth is I could raise a lot more capital if I just ran a long short strategy and seems a little bit more interesting. And on paper, it looks great, right? You know, if I can, you know, sell short stock and then have a bunch of cash and then go along and be levered that way, I'll make money when the market goes up, I'll make market when the money goes down. That's great. But the problem is, is when these trades go against you and it's completely irrational, like for instance, Carl, we owned a, we had owned a stake in a discovery communication. We sold it. We sold it recently. We did okay with it. We, we bought it around 18 and sold it in the fifties and forties. But the thing is I could have, if I wanted to try to play the spread between the, the A shares and the C shares. And generally they shouldn't really trade it much of a difference because the A shares have, you know, one vote per share and the C shares don't have many votes, but there's a shareholder um, who owns a controlling stake in the B shares, which gives you a lot more uh, voting rights. So your vote doesn't matter at discovery communications. So if I was to buy, you know, the one, one class of stock short, the other class of stock and try to play the spread, uh, well, the spread blew out uh, recently and, and it was like double digits. So if the spread blew out, I would have I would have gotten destroyed. You know, you saw this too with um, Liberty Sirius XM, a tracking stock for Sirius XM satellite radio. And you know, there's some hedge fund guys who um, wanted to you know go along Liberty Sirius and then short Sirius XM because the spread was at like ten percent. So they thought you know if the spread goes to five percent, you know that's a fifty percent return. Well, the problem is the spread went from ten percent to over thirty percent. So a lot of those shorts got wiped out because the, the trade went the exact opposite way it was supposed to. Will, will, will the spread eventually close? Probably, but a lot of people are going to get destroyed along the way. So that's why I don't short. Any other questions? I'll be here until all questions are exhausted. So if anyone has anything burning, don't be afraid to offend me. You know, ask anything that's on your mind and happy to have a discussion about it. I have a question. Has your investing strategy changed at all since the last year? So the strategy is to buy cheap stocks, but the game is always changing because the landscape looks different. So, you know, as I said, the game became look for companies that are priced like they're going to zero, but they're clearly not going to zero. You know, I've never had the opportunity to play that game before. That was a really fun game to play. The game's over now. So there's new games to play. I'd love for that game to come back. That was a fun game to play, but there's, there's other stuff now. So the, the way that those principles get expressed is, is, is always different, but I'm still looking to buy, you know, cheap securities. I'm not looking to speculate or uh, to gamble with people's money. You know, I still follow the principle, right? Rule number one, don't lose money. Rule number two, don't forget rule number one. So those are all in place, but I'm always learning. The whole idea of learning is kind of interesting, you know, and, and it sounds silly, but people don't know how to learn. So one, a few things that I do is I'm always looking to break my own conclusions. You know, I'm always looking to disassociate from a feeling I have about something. I've even stopped myself from saying this is a no-brainer because I don't want to get psychologically attached to something being a no-brainer. Uh, I, so I never get comfortable. So, so most of my job set is trying to destroy my ideas. I come up with an investment idea and then I spend all my energy trying to destroy the idea. And I'm constantly doing that. The principles and the strategy doesn't change, but the way it looks it will, will change from, from, from year to year. On that topic, what, what mistakes have you made? And, you know, for, I guess, uh, analysts who are newer in the game, you know, how, how can I learn from some of those mistakes you've made over time? 
So one of the biggest mistakes that I've made is I, I was psychologically anchored. So I, I talked about this in, uh, I think, some of the letters from 2018, uh, 2017, is, you know, I grew up, right, in high school, listening to Buffett and, you know, talks about buying brands and, you know, quality brands. And, um, you know, look at these companies that have had, you know, 20% returns on equity for, for decades. But it was very much rear view mirror thinking, right? So it was, you know, looking at the, the pools of, and look, I think the majority of my colleagues are still doing this, right? We're looking at the, the Procter and Gambles and the Colgates and the Hershey's and the Tootsie's. And, you know, but that's kind of like when Ben Graham was around and he goes, well, I'm just going to look at all the net nets. I'm not going to worry about Geico. I'm not going to worry about Procter and Gamble, right? So I'm looking for the modern day Procter and Gambles, except the modern day Procter and Gambles aren't Procter and Gamble, right? We have Amazon that is, you know, commoditized a lot of that. I was dumb. I, it, it took me a while to, to wake up and realize that there was all these great businesses right in front of me, but they weren't trading at, you know, six times PE on the surface. You know, so example, I originally passed on True Panion. That was a mistake, you know, an era of omission. I, I've lost more money to eras of omission than commission. And I was looking at True Panion when it was like, you know, eight, $9 a share. And I go, well, I don't want to buy this. This is, you know, this is, this is an insurance company trading at seven, eight times book value. That's stupid. However, when I kind of woke up and stopped being a moron, I realized that here was a business writing this, you know, S curve. Pet insurance was only, you know, at that time, I think under 1% penetrated where you had places like UK and 10, 25% going into Europe. And I saw that Trupanion was actually reinvesting their capital at 30 to 40% IRRs and they were intentionally not making a profit. Look, I had that realization about Amazon and my colleague, Marcelo Lima, you know, slapped me in the face, not actually slapped me in the face, but metaphorically slapped me in the face and goes, look, Eric, Amazon is, is sure it's trading at hundreds of times earnings. But if you look under the hood, uh, if you looked under the hood, they're, you know, reinvesting almost all their cash flows. And gap accounting doesn't show that. So that's kind of interesting, right? So gap, you could say gap accounting, modern accounting standards, generally accepted accounting principles, they are not really conducive for a company like Amazon. So what do I mean by that? Well, you could say Amazon has spent the last 30 odd years investing in research and development. It doesn't take a moron to figure out that that R&D has led to, to a return on that R&D. So you could make the argument, which I would make the argument, that the, all the research and development that Amazon has done is an asset. That is, that is an asset they've created over time. The problem with gap accounting is that doesn't show up on the balance sheet. That's, an ex, that's actually showing up as an expense on the income statement. You know, if you have a, a, a tire company and they're building a new manufacturing plant, that's an asset. But if the tire company has to spend some money to develop a new tire, well, every other company is doing the same thing. It's probably commoditized. That's not an asset. That, that's a legitimate expense. So what Amazon has done, you could say Amazon had a balance sheet that was invisible for gap accounting. And the real PE ratio, if you want to call it, that was not like 1,000 or 500 or whatever it is on, on the given day. It's a lot lower than that because you could say, okay, what, what does Amazon look like at scale if they decided not to reinvest? What do those normalized margins look like? And now all of a sudden you had a market multiple. And I'm like, holy shit, I'm getting Amazon at roughly a market multiple. 
So of course I buy Amazon. Then what happens? My investors start emailing me and be like, what the hell are you doing? Why are you buying a company at a few hundred times earnings? And I had to explain this to them. But yeah, I, I was really, really stupid for many, many years. Uh, like moronic, stupid horses ass you to the nth degree. If you had to give me a grade from an A to an F, I got an F minus on not understanding that these companies that were riding these S curves were intentionally not showing a profit. I missed out on a shit ton of money that I could have made. That being said though, there's a lot of companies that are doing that that are also super overpriced. So then the game was, how do I figure out the ones that are reasonably valued? And then what are the ones that are going to still be, you know, significantly overpriced and trading a 70 times revenue, which just makes, I don't know how to do that. But yeah, that's probably the biggest mistake I've made in my life is is I, I came late to the party on that, but finally came to the party. Yeah, appreciate that context. Uh, figuring out reinvestment votes is a it's a different game. It's Completely. tough. And, and Shaz, as you know, um, you know, I'm not going to divulge any personal information, but just from some of the conversations we've had, I know that you have colleagues. You would share some of those ideas with them. They have sort of the psychological gut reaction. One of the things that you know Buffett and Munger talk about is constantly trying to kill off your old conclusions. So. That was this conclusion that, you know, I'll never buy something at a thousand times earnings. Well, I was buying things at a thousand times earnings and calling it cheap and, and calling it value investing. Yeah. Uh, appreciate that. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Who else has a question? This is really awesome. I'm, lo- I'm loving this. Hey, Eric, it's me. Hello. Um, when you, how are you? Good. Enjoying this. When you think uh, long-term value, how do you factor in ESG and SRI these days? How do I factor in what? Uh, the ESG trends, the environment and socially responsible trends. Can, can you elaborate a little bit more on that? I, I don't know much about that. But sure. If you think about BlackRock and some of the others, they're basically saying that the environmental, you know, don't buy anything that's bad for the environment. Don't buy firms that don't have diversified um, employee bases. Okay. And whether or not it impacts, you know, short-term value, the question is, you know, what, can those firms survive or thrive without changing. Got it. Yes. So I actually do think about it. So, um, you know, going back, I'm going to just go back to our, my holding slide for a second. One of our largest cumulative holdings is in Brookfield Asset Management. And as Bruce Flatt would say, the CEO, um, it's not good business, not be a good steward of the environment. Right? If you're destroying private property and, and, and looting and polluting and destroying your reputation in, in the business world, not good business. So, you know, if you're polluting, if you're killing your customers, uh, if you're causing harm to people long-term, it's probably not good business. And in today's society where that's even less tolerated, and I think will continue to be less tolerated, um, it's really bad. So I think people care more about, you know, corporate culture. Long story short, if a business is taking steps to have you know a good environmental safety record, to have a you know inclusive culture where employees feel valued, you know sort of all of these somewhat intangible you know I don't want to say they're intangible things, but they're things that I think some people see as destructive to making profits. I would say, and the data would back it up, that companies that actually look to be good stewards of their communities um, actually end up uh, creating more value. It's not the end-all be-all for me. I've certainly invested in companies with terrible cultures and environmental track records. But when they're doing a good job, it actually makes the, the business more valuable. It's, it's a competitive advantage. And I, I think that competitive advantage becomes even more so going forward. 
Anyone else have a question? Does it, Mitch, does that, does that answer it for you? Yes. Okay. All right. I just didn't want to feel like I was giving you some like bullshit corporate response. No, I've got it. Okay, cool. Um, who else would like to ask something? Don't be shy. You can literally, there's anything goes here. So there, there's nothing you can say that'll upset me or offend me and hardballs are welcome. All right. Anyone else going once, going twice, going three times? One last question for you. Please. Sorry. I don't mean. No, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm all night. So please. I love um, but my, my final question for you is in the beginning of this, you, you talked about wanting to be a, a boutique firm or your boutique firm and wanting to stay that way. Yes. Um, you have every reason not to want to do that. Um, the larger your firm, the more assets you collect, the more money you'll make. You are inherently uh, incentivized to do so. Therefore, how do you intend to manage that? And, and why is that your position? You know, what's so funny. When I do investor presentation, I say a little bit of, about that at the last slide. And no one ever asks me for like more detail. It just seems to pass me by. But for me, that's one of the most important things. So, you know, I think if you, you know, if you look at like the venture capital model, right, or you look at Shark Tank, right, you want the person you're investing in, right? You know, if I was to, you know, seed a, a, a CEO of some startup with a brilliant idea, I want him or her to feel really valued. I want him to have a great, you know, him or her to have a great lifestyle. You know, this, this whole idea, you know, I'm going to give seed capital to someone and they're going to have to eat stale bagels for five years to pay their dues is I'm not saying it ever doesn't happen, but I think it's a, kind of an outdated way of thinking, right? Like you're just going to be less incentivized to do well if you're just miserable all the time. So I know people that run some pretty large funds and, you know, it gets to a point when you're at a large enough size where you don't always like all your clients, hate to say it, but there's people that, you know, have big firms that complain to me and on the phone about their clients. And they have so many investors, you know, there's only so much you can control over that. So, you know, I don't want to have a Zoom meeting with a thousand people and I'm making more money, but I'm dealing with people calling me every week, asking what their portfolio is done. And then I have to suck up to people and take them out for golf and go to their country club just to pretend to like them. And I, it's, a, it's a horrible lifestyle. So even at the size that I'm at right now, which I do want to grow from this, it's not like I'm doing bad in life and, and have some horrible lifestyle. Look, at some point in my life, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling in $3 million a year in salary, as opposed to a hundred million dollars a year. Like, look, I'm getting paid to do something that, that I love. I I'm a road trip junkie. I get to work on the road and just came back from Santa Monica, California last week. And I'm going to Alaska uh, for St. Patrick's day for 10 days. And I got to research stocks in Alaska and then go ice fishing. I don't want to give up that lifestyle because if I gave up that lifestyle, I'd be miserable and, and you don't want me miserable managing your money. Like if I'm, if I'm miserable, you should take your money and run like, quickly. So that's why, that's why I want to stay boutique. It doesn't mean that I don't want to grow. I absolutely want to grow, but I don't want to be some large, you know, multi-billion dollar farm where I don't really feel I have much of a competitive engine anymore. Look, I'm not smart enough to figure out bankruptcy doc docs. Like that, that's just not what I do. I have no interest in reading court documents and 900 pages of bankruptcy notes to find nothing. That's just not my game. It's not what I'm interested in. So I'll never have that competitive advantage. So I don't want to play that game. I like to do, I look, I'm kind of lazy. I like to do things that are easy and, and fun and get to talk to management teams and get to research really obscure little hidden gems. And when you get to a big enough point, your opportunity set just starts to go down and then I'll become more commoditized. So my, my performance will probably go down over time. 
and then I'll hate more of my investors because if you have you know a thousand investors, you're not going to like all of them. I, I don't ever want to be in a situation like that. So you know that's why. Good answer. I appreciate Carl. that. I appreciate Carl. the honesty there. Mm-hmm. Hey, I was going to say thank you for asking that question. I was going to ask it of him too. I like the ice fishing. That's what I, I that I want to hear about that. I'll let you know. If I don't let you know, it means I drowned. <laughs> so I'll let you know. Anyone else have have a question? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, question. I just want to acknowledge everybody for that asked questions and those who didn't as well. But it's just so awesome to hear these great questions. And then even seeing you taking your time to not give a pat answer, but to kind of get to the core of, of who you are about uh, in terms of this investor. It's, I love it. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you being here. And, and to everybody that, that participated. Thank you. It's really cool. Yeah. Well, you see, and to speak to question, this gets harder and harder with a thousand people on a Zoom call. Yeah, of course. So, as you notice, I invited all of you. It wasn't like you saw this, you know, in the Wall Street Journal and decided to come. And there's people I chose not to invite. I don't want to work with people that are going to make me miserable, even if they have money to give me. I have a question, Eric. Ashley, go ahead. If you had somebody who insisted on wanting to get dividends, um, where would you be looking for that? Well, let me ask, are you someone that as an investor would insist get dividends? No, not me. No. (laughs) Uh, It's kind of like a hypothetical. Like if you have somebody who's saying I need X amount in dividends, how would you approach that? Yeah. So the hard thing with answering hypothetical questions is that there's many more variables than what's in the question, right? So I might ask them, you know, what, why do they insist on having dividends? Why don't you create your own dividend and just take a long-term capital gains tax and pay less taxes in your dividend? So I think generally in my experience, when someone has an insistence on dividends, there's some principle, I don't know what it is, because it's going to be different depending on the person, but there's something they're not, they're missing. And it's my job to listen for what they're not getting and kind of educate them and then see if they're still aligned with what I want to do for them. So, you know, I think some people, I remember having a conversation a few years ago with someone who's like, yeah, I'm just going to buy a lot of blue chip dividend stocks. And I said, okay, well, why do you want to buy them? I go, well, you know, I'm getting a 2% yield and I'm getting some income. And I said, well, what happens if that stock goes down by 70%? And are, are you still going to be happy that it's a dividend paying stock? Would you rather have had a company not paying a dividend, but reinvesting capital at 40% annualized and you're getting it at 50 cents on the dollar? And then that stock is up 300%. And then you can take a long-term capital gains tax and sell it. Of course, their mouth opens like, what? Like, so I think generally people who have this like obsession with dividends just aren't getting something. It's kind of like, you know, management teams at corporations that have an obsession with stock buybacks and they start buying back stock at any price. You know, stock buybacks aren't inherently good. In fact, uh, a, lot of pe- a lot of companies waste a lot of capital on stock buybacks. Stock buybacks only good if you're buying it at a good price. Well, a dividend is only good if you have no better use for the capital. You know, so it really depends on, on, on the person and the situation. But generally, if someone has this weird obsession with dividends, there's probably not something they're getting. Thanks. I agree. I just love your answers. So thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I wonder if someone, you know, what would be really interesting if someone came to me and said, you know, I, I want you to only buy, uh, you know, gold mining businesses in Mongolia. I'd be like, huh, do you have a view about Mongolia? Like, that would be interesting. I would be really curious to have someone... No one, no one's done that. They're, it's usually something like dividends, but I've, I've always been waiting for the day uh, to someone have some, you know, obsession about, you know, some strange country or 
not saying it's Mongolia is strange, but different in some weird industries. So, you know, if, if any of you are not investors and you have some interesting thing that you need to, you know, own, you know, steel companies in Taiwan or something, I'd love to hear the thesis behind it. So who else has a question or anything they'd like to share, ask about? It's on your mind, just share it. It's my favorite thing. So you're not, you're not bothering me if you, if you have a question. Great. Yeah, just looking through all the faces here. I love that you all are here. This is really, this is really cool. I, are you guys, let me ask you, the people who have been to the annual meetings before, are you guys also, in, are you enjoying the Zoom format or do you feel like it, it takes away? Like, do you think, I prefer the Zoom format. Kind of digging this. Um, I know you've been to the meetings before. How do you feel about the Zoom format? Uh, I think it's a decent substitute. I like being in person. Yeah. All right. Well, when, when things get back to normal, maybe we'll do like an in-person again. And then for people who can't make it or don't want to be there, um, we'll, we'll do a Zoom thing. Cause I'm, I, I think both have, have usefulness. I think given your geography, people here, you yeah. use advantage. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm going to keep doing the Zoom thing. Are you- yeah, it might be hard, you know, if you're ice fishing, uh, you know. Right, man. <laughs> Eric, you, just going forward, you could do one remote and one in yeah. person. That's a good idea. Anyone else have any have any questions for me? Anything that uh, I said or you know, curious about? Or was someone gonna someone was saying something? I was gonna say thank you. I'm gonna go ahead and drop off, but I echo the sentiment of everybody asking really great questions. Um, and also, Eric, your very thoughtful, considered answers are always are always illuminating. And um, I just want to say about Matt. You know, he's been here since the very beginning and he had to endure uh you know my two hour long company movies and then three hour business things and then opening up to q a and seven hours into it so given me a lot of feedback over the years to stay more concise and, and do better meetings so the fact that it's not one in the morning at this point is, is a big big thanks to tolerated your parents at dinner too it was an investment that has paid off handsomely <laughs> I hope it continues. I'm not sure which direction. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, if there's no more questions, I think uh, we'll wrap it up. Does anyone have any more questions? I don't want to wrap it up when someone has a burning desire for something. So going once, going twice. Well, I declare the end of the meeting and I'll, I'll see you all back in 2022 and, and hopefully some of you in person. All right. Take care, guys. Thanks, Eric. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast with Eric Schlein. If you'd like to connect with Eric for questions, comments, feedback, ideas, or to inquire about being on the show, please contact Eric at intelligentinvesting at gmail.com. So, in the words of Charlie Munger, I have nothing to add.